You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. In the house, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. Our text today is Exodus chapters 15, uh, 13 to 15. Chapters 13 to 15. It's good to be back with you this morning. I was away officiating a wedding last weekend, and it was a beautiful ceremony, but I always miss you when I'm not able to be here with the family of God. So it's good to be back with you today and to gather around God's Word. Uh, If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? To get us started, I want to read Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 to 9. Listen carefully to God's Word. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea by pi Hahirath, in front of baal Zephon. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In the late 90s, in the early 2000s, M. Night Shyamalan, filmmaker, screenwriter, was at the peak of his game. 1999, he had just released The Sixth Sense. Some of you will know this one. Classic, kind of twisty ghost story. And then a few years later, in 2002, he released Signs. A very suspenseful sci-fi story with some great dialogue about faith. The story follows a former reverend and farmer played by Mel Gibson. And this farmer's entire world changes as he discovers these strange circles that have been carved into his crops. This phenomenon begins to occur elsewhere, and eventually we discover, sorry, spoiler alert here, we discover the cause of it, it's aliens. Oh yes, it's aliens. You never know when you might hear about aliens at Faith Church on a Sunday morning. It's aliens. Now at the end of the movie, one of those otherworldly beings comes to Mel Gibson's farm and goes after his family, and so they have to fight it out. The problem is this extraterrestrial has superior technology. It can camouflage. It can emit a poisonous gas from its hand. But as the fight plays out, we discover, by chance or by providence, that there's one very basic thing that this alien cannot tolerate. In fact, there's one basic thing that to this alien, it is poison. And you know what it is? It's water. Water. It can't tolerate water. It can't survive water. Now this, I think, is some of Shyamalan's best writing, his most brilliant writing, because he picks up here on a very ancient theme. He gives it a contemporary twist in his story, but it's an ancient theme, the power of water. 
Poseidon in Greek mythology, or in Roman mythology, Neptune, could control the waters. And so Poseidon was feared. In the biblical story, the sea is often pictured as a symbol of chaos, destruction, because you see, the ancient people knew. They knew the power of water, but they feared it. They feared it because this was an unexplored abyss. It was violent. It could turn on them at any moment. They knew the power of it, but they feared it. Who can control a power like this? We come today to Exodus, chapters 13 to 15, another one of the most memorable scenes in the Exodus story. It's a battle scene. It's the battle between the Egyptian army and the Israelites at the sea. Or more precisely, it's the battle fought by the sea. At the very center of this passage, in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, we find Moses' words delivered to the people of Israel. And these directives, in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, these directives serve rather handily as an outline for the entire battle scene. The three-piece directive goes like this. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's consider each of these, starting with fear not. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Now, what do the people have to fear? What has happened to them? When last we left the Exodus story, things were going rather well. After 400 years of living in slavery in Egypt, God had delivered his people. He struck Egypt 10 times. The final strike was the death of the firstborn child in every Egyptian household. God sent his destroyer, providing the way of protection, the means of salvation for his people. But every house in Egypt felt his judgment, including Pharaoh's own house. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people had been enslaved, living under these anti-God tyrants, these wannabe gods called pharaohs, and finally they're delivered. At the end of chapter 12, Pharaoh, after having so many opportunities to repent, so many opportunities to let the people go, he remained hard-hearted, and at the end of chapter 12, he's heartbroken. He has felt God's judgment. He has felt the loss of his own son. And so he summons Moses and Aaron, and he releases the people of Israel. He sets them free. Now, that's where we left things two Sundays ago. What has happened that would now cause Moses to say to the people of Israel, fear not? What lies ahead of them? Or what is approaching from behind? It's Pharaoh's army. We know from the ten strikes that Pharaoh was notorious for changing his mind. And he does so again here. He experiences the grief of the loss of his son. But very soon, his grief turns to anger and his anger to madness. And so he assembles a massive army using all the best weapons from Egypt's arsenal. And he plans to go after the Israelites. 
either to capture them and re-enslave them or to extinguish them altogether. And the passage that I read gave us a few of the details of this army. It was a massive army. It was a titanic force. When the story of the Exodus is happening, Egypt is in its golden age of military glory. There was no empire, no army that could compare to this one. The Pharaoh, to show himself a fearless warrior, often would personally lead his people into battle as he does here in the Exodus story. But it's not just Pharaoh going along. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of war chariots. This was the best technology, the best technology of the day in the form of weaponry. The war chariot would have been carried by two horses, two people on it. One of them was the shield bearer, the other the archer. The shield bearer protected the unit. The archer navigated the chariot and then fired the arrows or used a javelin at closer distances. You must understand the two sides that are about to meet on this battlefield. On the one side is Pharaoh's titanic army, wielding the cutting-edge technology of the day in the form of weaponry. On the other side is Israel. Peasants, unarmed civilians, including women and children. Under normal circumstances, there was no way that Israel could be a match to this titanic force. They thought they had been set free, but as they look into the distance and see this army coming at them, they are afraid. It incites panic, anxiety, and even doubt within them. They cry out to God and they complain about Moses. Using hard sarcasm, they say to Moses, did you bring us here because they ran out of graves in Egypt? Was there not enough room to bury us back then, back there? So you brought us here to bury us in the wilderness? Because surely we're about to die, Moses. We never should have followed you. We wish we still lived in Egypt. It would have been better to live in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. How quickly they forget everything they had seen. How quickly they forget the God who struck Egypt and spared them. The God who sent the destroyer, hitting every Egyptian home, but sparing God's people. How quickly they forget. You and I, we are just like the Israelites. How quickly we forget. Believers, we know that God loves us. We know that God has saved us by the blood of his son. We know that he has delivered us from terrible things so many times. And yet we see that new adversary coming. We see that new adversity and how quickly we forget. We doubt, we distrust. The trust that was once so strong in the Lord, it shatters like a glass bottle being cast against a brick wall. We forget, we fear. And so God in his providence has preserved for us this story 
so that we can hear the same words that Moses said to the Israelites, fear not. Fear not. And Moses goes on to say, stand firm. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. Now taken by itself, this second directive makes it sound like the people of Israel are going to need to stand firm as in hold the line, fight against this approaching army. The third directive will clear that up for us in just a moment. It's not at all what happens here. But for now, we need to consider where are they when Moses gives this directive to stand firm and how did they get there? From the moment they left slavery in Egypt, God has directed their every step, bringing Israel to this exact location. Look at how he directed them. Back in chapter 13, we're told that God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them. God's direction of his people was visible, unmistakable. In the daytime, he provided a thick smoky cloud in the evening, that same cloud glowed with an internal flame, a fire. Do you remember the fire? Back on the mountain, when God called Moses, the first thing Moses saw was fire, a symbol of God's holiness. It's the perfect symbol when you think about it because on the one hand, we're drawn to fire. Don't you love on a chilly evening to just gather around the fire and watch the flame dance? But on the other hand, we know not to get too close. We say to our children, never play with fire. It's good, but it's not safe. God's direction of his people here is visible, fire. It's unmistakable, and it's also unchanging. This cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Not for a single moment were they without guidance. The GPS didn't fail. They didn't have an opportunity to take a wrong turn somewhere. They are exactly where God wants them to be. And where is that? With their backs to the sea. It makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. It's a tactical disadvantage. In a situation like this, what do you want? You want the high ground. You want some sort of stronghold, a fortress. In the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, for example, when the army of Saruman is approaching, where do the people of Rohan go? They go to Helm's Deep. And why do they go there? Because it's a massive fortress that has never once fallen. Behind these walls, they will be protected. But in the Exodus story, there are no walls. There is no fortress. There is no Helm's Deep. Why? Why would God lead them here, backs to the sea? No way of escape. No way to seek refuge. What is God up to here? He tells us. He tells Moses in chapter 14, verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue the people, and I will get glory 
over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now we saw very similar language back in chapter 7. The language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, his judgment coming on Pharaoh in Egypt with a very clear purpose that they will know that I am the Lord. But there's something new here. It's the word glory. It's the first time in all of Exodus that this word glory occurs. God will get glory over Pharaoh. Now this word glory is it's a rather difficult word to define. In English, the word glory means something like high renown, honor. The Hebrew word translated here means something like heaviness or weightiness in the sense of great importance, great significance. It's intriguing, I think, that the word glory never occurs until this point in the story, and from this point on, the word occurs regularly. Because here at this point in the story, Pharaoh, who thought himself glorious, who thought himself impressive, important, it is here at this moment that the Pharaoh sinks, falls from on high, sinks into the depths, and God reveals conclusively that he is all glorious, that he is supreme, powerful over all, over every king, every army, every people, God will get glory. And how does he do it? How does he show himself to be glorious? By leading his people into an impossible situation. An impossible situation, not a difficult one. An impossible one. Backs to the sea, no way of escape. A massive army led by a madman coming right at you. It's an impossible situation. It is when you have followed God's direction and your life is at its darkest moment, this is when God intervenes. When his power from heaven breaks through because it is at this moment that you know you couldn't have made it without him. You couldn't have. There was no other way. And so God made the way. Fear not. Stand firm, Moses says. And in the final directive, see the salvation of the Lord. One more time, Exodus 14, 13, and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Backs to the water. Massive army led by a madman coming right at you. There is no way. And so God makes the way. The people of Israel are told that they must turn and face the sea and march toward it. 
Moses must raise his staff and stretch out his arm toward the sea. Apart from this, the people do nothing. They don't even speak. You will remain silent, God says. They are not warriors. They are not advisors. They are observers, beholders of the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh. Their action is limited to their sight. They watch. And God takes action. God comes to the rescue of his people. He sends a strong wind and he drives back the waters. This is the warrior who wields the waters. The one true God who in Genesis separated the waters from the dry land and who later caused the waters to rise, wiping away the corruption of humanity while protecting Noah and his family. The one true God who in Exodus spared Moses from the waters of the Nile and who later transformed those same waters into blood as a sign of his coming judgment on Egypt. This same God now separates the waters, creating both the way of escape for his people and the ultimate way of dethroning Pharaoh and destroying the evil of Egypt. The water of the sea becomes like jello. The deeps congealed. A wall of water to the left, a wall of water to the right, and dry ground in between. And God's people find their way of escape. They march forward just as God told them. Pharaoh, in his madness, leads his army in after them. But chariots, remember the war chariots? Chariots are not made for this sort of terrain. They begin to struggle. And to make matters worse, God looks down and causes the people to panic. This titanic army, massive in size, cutting-edge weapons, now it's just a quivering mass. Chariots stuck, weapons useless. And as soon as the Israelites, God's people, make it safely to the other side, as they make it through the gelatinized sea, God causes the waters to return to its original state. Those walls collapse into waves, swallowing up Pharaoh and his entire army. And in the blink of an eye, they sink into the depths. They sink into oblivion. And what did God's people have to do? Watch. They're not warriors. They're not advisors. They're observers, beholders of the glory of Yahweh. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. But after seeing something like this, after seeing it, they can no longer remain silent. Chapter 15 is their song of victory. It's the first community-wide praise service. After seeing this, after everything that God has done for them, they must celebrate. 
And so the entire community sings, celebrates the glory, the greatness of God. It was customary for the women to sing. Typically, the women would sing as the men returned from a victorious battle. But on this day, everyone sings because there's only one warrior, and it's Yahweh. The people, the community, are an army, but not an army at war. They're an army in worship. Together, they lift their voices and they sing praises to the God who has saved them because they want to remember this day always. And at the center of their song is Yahweh. It's all about Him. Moses, their leader, he doesn't receive not even a mention in the song because Moses didn't fight for them. The Lord fought for them. And so they sing, giving glory, honor, praise to the Lord. They celebrate, they remember. As we wrap up, I want to circle back to a couple of details in this story and think a bit more about application. Two questions that I have for you in closing. Two final points of application. The first one is how will you respond when the Lord directs you to a dead end? Because that's exactly what happens in this story. God guided his people. They went exactly where God was telling them to go. And they arrived at a dead end. Backs to the sea. Army invading. A hopeless situation. Maybe this is the way you feel. You have followed God's leading. You have gone exactly where God was calling you. No, there wasn't a pillar of fire, but there were other signs. Maybe it's a new job you started, and the signs were your passions for that job, your ability to do it, and the encouragement of friends telling you, yes, this is the perfect fit for you. Go in that direction. And so you went, and now here you are, and it seems like an impossible situation. It seems hopeless. And for a moment, it feels to you like following God is a foolish thing to do. You must remember it is when you have followed God's direction and your life is at its darkest moment, this is when God intervenes because this is how you know that you couldn't have made it without him. Don't run from the situation and don't try to fight the battle on your own. Pray. Trust, wait patiently for God to work. This is the warrior that wields the waters. If he has led you there, he will lead you through it. Trust him. One final question of application. Whose glory story is this? Apply that question to your own life. Whose glory story is this? It's very clear in this passage that God will get glory from Pharaoh. Pharaoh who thought himself glorious. God will show that he is supreme. 
You see, Pharaoh chose the path of vain glory and obsession with his own power and recognition. There is another way. The other way is to give glory to God. Give it to him freely, seeing that he is supreme, that he is ultimate. It is to tattoo on your life that wonderful phrase, solideo gloria, glory to God alone. It is to admit freely and from beginning to end, it's not about me. It's not about me. Now, does this mean that all recognition is wrong? No. No, but it does mean that whatever recognition befalls us is intended to be an opportunity to lift high the one who has given us every gift we have, the one who has allowed us, empowered us to make whatever contribution it is that we make. It is an opportunity to say again and again, it's not about me. Oh, but I know the one. I know the one who is infinitely more important, infinitely more impressive, the warrior who wields the waters, the one who has saved me, sustains me, given me every gift I have, made me all that I am. It's not about me. It's about him. Solideo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. A real event that happened so long ago and that speaks so mightily into our lives here and now. For those of us that find ourselves at a dead end, knowing, God, that you are the one who has led us there, and so we're confused. It has incited some panic within us. Oh, calm our hearts today. Help us to wait and trust. Remembering the countless times you have rescued us before. Knowing that you will do it again. Trusting that you do indeed have a good plan and purpose in this situation. Help us to stand firm. Having no confidence in ourselves, but having a great confidence in you, God. For those of us who don't like to admit it, but it's true, we're very much like the Pharaoh. We thought the glory story was ours. We've been trying to be the hero of the story, the center of the universe, the center of everyone's attention. God, forgive us. We don't want you to have to get glory from us. We would much rather give it to you freely, seeing that you are the only one who deserves it. You are the only one who is supreme, who is ultimate, the creator and sustainer of all. Oh God, may we live our lives pointing to you in all that we do. As we transition into a time of communion this morning, we remember 
just as the people of Israel did so long ago. We remember your mighty acts of deliverance, God. The ultimate exodus being the cross itself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins and who defeated the powers of sin and death. We remember and we celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. When you came in this morning, you should have received some communion elements. If you happen to miss those, you can sneak back to the back and grab those now. This is a time for all believers, baptized followers of Jesus Christ to celebrate what we call communion. Normally at Faith Church, we celebrate communion once a month, but during the seasons of Lent and Advent, we celebrate communion weekly as a way of keeping the gospel at the forefront of our thinking in this build-up to Easter and then in the build-up to Christmas. This Lenten season, I want to do something slightly different to help us gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for communion. I want to use a very short reading that comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a historic summary of Reformed theology, what we believe here at Faith Church. And in chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession, there's a wonderful introductory paragraph that tells us what communion is all about. Now, this is the 1647 version, so there's a bit of Old English in here, but bear with me, it does, it does have a beauty to it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and his blood, the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church until the end of the world. He instituted it for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. For the sealing of all benefits, therefore, unto true believers. For their spiritual nourishment and growth in him. And for their further engagement in and to all the duties to which they owe him. And to be a bond and a pledge of their communion, their communion with him, and their communion with each other as members of his body. Each week, we're going to pull out just one little piece of that to focus on. Today being that first part, he instituted communion for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself. We've talked a lot about memory in this Exodus series. Memory is a powerful thing. Memory is a mysterious thing. Why do we remember the things we do? Why do we forget the things we do? Sometimes it seems like our memories choose us rather than us choosing them. But the one thing we must never forget is the gospel. We say this all the time at Faith Church. The gospel is not like training wheels on a bike. It's not something you need for a little while but eventually can make do without. The gospel is everything. We must never forget it. Every time we celebrate communion, we remember the gospel together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Celebrate the gospel. Amen.